One, two, three, bring in Derek Miner. What's up? Pastor with no answers. Listenership. How are you all doing? It's Joey Svensson back at you in your earbuds. I was thinking about theology the other day and just how I used to think I had it all figured out. It's like I had it systematized. But my system represented probably like 0.0001% of all the world had that sort of spirituality perspective. In fact, let's just talk about the Christians. And my belief system probably represented 1% of all Christians. But I, for some reason, just thought I had it all figured out. And then I started to have questions, then I started to have doubt, then things just didn't start to line up, and you get a little scared. You get scared because you were always taught, man, if you start letting go of stuff, you could be in danger. But I've actually found that that is when God stepped in and started carrying me and started helping me, and I let go of the fear. But it's now I'm in a place where I'm reflecting on if you put all the sorts of things together that I believed, you come up with some crazy, crazy scenarios. So let me paint you a picture. It's a fictitious picture that Joey died and went to the throne of judgment where God was not happy with Joey because he started to doubt certain things certain things. And so I go to God and I say, I just didn't have the faith to believe that way anymore. And God says, depart Depart from from me. me. I needed needed you to believe believe that that way. way. And I say, but, but I couldn't, you you know me more than anyone. I mean, you, you, you made me, I wanted to believe the right way. And God says, you just just needed needed to have have faith. faith. And I respond, but, but, I, but I thought the Bible said you'd be in charge of that, like giving me my measure of faith. I mean, I begged you for it because I wanted peace so badly. I needed help because I didn't want to go to hell. And God says, sorry, sorry. Depart, depart from, from me. me. But I cried for you, depart, depart from, from me. me. I'm extremely extremely sad, sad too. too. It's It's not my will for you to perish, perish. but But, but, you didn't didn't have have enough enough faith. faith. But I asked for more. You said if I'd ask, I'd just receive, and I asked for that kind of faith that I needed. Sorry, Sorry. it just just wasn't wasn't that that simple simple as as it appeared. appeared. How could you you think that? that? Okay, okay, God, okay, then I messed up. I messed up, but but I believe I believe now. Like I see you, I, I'm standing before you. I, I I sense your love. Cut me a break, please. Like like the like you did the thief that died next to, to you. You you just took him as your own. I mean, do that with me. I I I, I want you. I see you now. I'm 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 sure. I'm sure. I'm. I even love you now. I'm sure of it. No, no, time's, time's up. up. Your, Your physical, physical body, body has, has died, died. So, so it is, it is now, now too late, late even, even though, though you have an eternity, eternity to exist, to exist apart, apart from, from me. From like, it's impossible for me to, to be saved now? Like, like how am I different from the thief? How's, how's he doing, by the way? But, but yeah, how, how am I different? I, th- I think I even tried a bit harder than him through my whole life. I was trying to, to do what was right. You're, You're dead, dead now. now. Time, Time is, is up, up for you. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like now I have more insight. I, I'm telling you now, I believe. You said that you wanted us to all have life. It was, it was your will. And I desire you more than anything. It was, it was just, just my, my will, will for some, some people. people. You've heard, You've heard Calvin. Calvin. But but you told us to love even our enemies. And, and you mean you don't really you don't really love yours? Why do you, Why question, do you question, question me, me when, I, when made I made the oceans, the oceans and stuff? <laughs> okay. 
I'm thankful that you appeased me if you listened listen through all of that, but I don't know. Does does it that, that can anyone relate to me that if you put all these beliefs together that you've believed the vast majority of your life, this is the kind of stuff that comes out of it? Oh well. And today we have Scott McKnight, an unbelievable author, by the way. You gotta read the book book Blue Parakeet. It really helped me in my journey of seeing the Bible differently. You got to check that one out. But he just wrote a book called Tove, and it is a book that was birthed out of the downfall of maybe the first well-known megachurch pastor of all times, and that's Bill Hybels. Well, some of the stories, as I said, have, that were about me have been misleading and some entirely false. And while investigations found no evidence of misconduct, I have been sobered by these accusations. I've been looking forward to this conversation a good long while. I think I reached out to you. And Scott, I'm from the South, so it's really hard for me not to call you Mr. Scott and Sir. So I'll, t- <laughs> I'll, I'll just go for it. Scott and Chip. By the way, this is my co-host, Chip Judd. He pops in here pretty regularly, and I'm pretty sure has read some of your work, Chip. Am I correct? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. And why? Well, well, time out, Joey. Why don't you call me Mister and Sir? I, yeah, yeah. I, if you would allow me, I would. I would, Mister oh, Chip. Please, Mister Chip. No, I don't. I don't care if Chip has read me as long as he's bought the books. <laughs> I, I'm I'm looking at him right now, right here on my iPad. <laughs> Community called the Tome, and I love. Oh, well, thanks. That was a fun book to write. I loved it. Oh I'll man, talk Thank to you about you. it sometime. Yeah, it yeah. was interesting because I, I I have a hard time kind of keeping up with a lot of the authors that I like. That it seems to be easier to keep up with movies for some reason. But I reached out to Scott to talk about a book you wrote a long time ago, The Blue Parakeet, which was super super helpful for me. And then you told me about Tove, and I think it's Tove. It's not Tov, is it? It's Tove. 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 Yeah, Tove. Tove. Awesome. So I tell you what, I. I'll tell you this, Scott. I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a podcast called Bad Christian Podcast, but it was me and a couple of friends that started it about 2015. And this was the kind of stuff that we talked about a lot. And that wow. was the downfall of pastors and then pastors wanting to to you to honor their privacy and just... What in the... like? I, I feel like you, you guys both are old enough to remember Vince Lombardi and that, that, uh, that faint... <laughs> That famous quote of him on the field saying, what the hell's going on out here? What the hell's going on out here? And I just, gosh, with with Ravi Zacharias and and Bill Hybels, I'll tell you a real quick thing here, Scott, that our pastor, (laughs) Greg, our, our pastor, Greg Surratt, he actually is is friends with Bill Hybels or was. I don't know how that works out, but I asked him, I said, Pastor Greg, are you as surprised about Bill Hybels as I would be if I found this stuff out about you? And his immediate answer was, absolutely. And so I would love just to, yeah, I want to talk about the book, what led you to write the book, and I've got all sorts of notes, too much to talk about probably, but I'll just start here. Is, is how long had you been going to Willow Creek and how shocked were you yeah, well, when we, that stuff came out? Uh, my daughter, Laura, and her husband had been there for, well, Laura's been there about 20 years. She had been yep. there 20 years. We attended for 10 years. So we weren't not, uh, we weren't insiders. Plus it took forever uh, to 45 minutes at times to get there. One time I was going to be on the platform to speak Took me an hour and a half to get there, so yep. we we stopped going uh, because of uh, because of traffic patterns. But uh, so uh, we were not we were not attending when this happened. But I um, I I will tell you that because I've been involved in this kind of ministry or teaching, writing, thinking about churches 
since, let's say, the mid-70s, I was not surprised in the sense that I've seen this before. But um, I would have I would have said I never saw anything about Bill Hybels that made me think this way. I still would say that. But uh, because of the way the story was written by Manya Brashir, uh, uh, Pashman at Chicago Tribune, when I saw the names Nancy Beach, Nancy Ortberg, and Vonda Dyer, it, you know, as they say in fishing, my dad was a bass fisherman on topwater lures. Um, but this is this is walleye fishing. The jig was up for me before we even got there. I thought, because of how reputable those people were. I said this this happened. I said that yeah. I I wrote to Nancy Beach, and I said I believe you, because yeah. I think uh, those are women of high integrity, and there's not a chance that they're going to be lying together about that story. So, in that sense, I was immediately ambushed by the argument, and I I believed it. Um, I was profoundly disappointed. I felt like we, as part of Willow Creek's community, were betrayed. I have defended Bill Hybels many, many times in the presence of other people. And, you know, he wrote on the back of one of my books that he had made an inner commitment that he would read every book I ever wrote uh, after I wrote One Life. So I, I was profoundly disappointed. So I would say I wasn't stunned or surprised as much I, as I felt betrayed and um, very disappointed in what happened. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I talk about this kind of stuff super flippantly, but hearing you say that get, gives me a little lump in my throat for sure. Just be, just that, that personal sense of you felt betrayed. You defended the guy. I mean, golly. So but before I tell you a little bit more about Chip, I don't want to assume that any of our listeners even know what the hell Bill Hybels did or even who he is. Uh, let me give a stab at who he is. I would go on the record to say Bill Hybels, for the most part, started the megachurch movement. I think that he, his his angle was if we could just reach these baby boomers who were brought up into legalistic, uh, irrelevant uh, sorts of sermons and, and stoic environments, uh, if we can give them uh, you know, an awesome time and something that's practical, then we can get the wife and the children and everyone. And I mean, kind of a, a rock show, somewhat of a, a mentality it exploded, and I think everybody kind of followed suit. Is that fair to as far as describing Bill Hybels? I totally agree. And I also think his genius was to survey people and ask why they weren't going to church. Gotcha. That was a genius gotcha. move on his part. And they created a church that would be inoffensive to people offended by, say, making people give money, having long invitations, being irrelevant. He wanted to reach what he called, didn't he call them unchurched Sally and Harry or something like that? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. what he wanted to get. And and it was yeah. genius at it. He yeah. He changed American churches on that on that basis right there. Yep. Yep. And I think it was I think how he did stuff, there was a season for that. I kind of think that season is is over as far as the implications for like as far as the actual philosophy behind it, I kind of think we're living in a different age. But Scott, so what what happened? I know Chip knows, but for our listeners, how would you put? How would you give kind of a snapshot picture of what people found out when news broke of Bill Hybels' misconduct? Well, the original story was three or four women who uh, alleged sexual indiscretions on the part of Bill. Um. Then a few a few more came out. Well, first, then he denied it. The church denied it. The elders denied it. They pounded on the women as lying, colluding, all these people colluding together. Then uh, a couple more women came forward. And then what really was the damning, the, the and Bill Hybels resigned. And then an article, I believe this is the right order, 
an article came out in the New York Times by a woman who worked closely with Bill Hybels that had details that were utterly damning. And from that point on, the story was over. It was it was clear that he had committed these, uh, that he had sexually harassed and abused women. Um, and it was a pattern. It went on for a long time and he was gone and the church was gonna have to recover. And so, and I, and I think that one of the sad parts, I don't believe the church ever did right by the women. Uh, their apologies to the women were so minimalistic and um, abstract and evasive that um, that the women still feel hurt, wounded, traumatized by the way the church treated them. And that that could have been done easily because they had seen, they had basically knew they had to move on because Bill had done these things. I know these past months have been excruciating. And I want to personally acknowledge to you the mistakes that I have made. I need to speak these words for my own integrity and for our church. I need to publicly apologize to the women who raised concerns about Bill. To the women directly, I can't imagine how painful these months have been for you. And I am so sorry for the ways that I have contributed to that. I want you all to know that I never thought the allegations brought against Bill were all lies. I should have jumped in and declared that personally right away. I believe Bill had interactions that were hurtful to these women. That is wrong and I hope and pray that someday this can be made right. I'll keep the, the lumps in my throat keep coming. I'll just get used to it for this episode. So Scott, Chip and I go way back. He actually, we, we are a church that really takes serious the health of pastors on staff, mental health specifically, but just in every area. He's, he's the pastor of pastors. He's a licensed therapist. He is just a breath of fresh air to, to all of us. And I, and I feel like Seacoast, we are doing the best we can to stay out of this sort of mess that happens at, at other churches. But uh, Chip also goes to, like churches will hire him to go in, see their culture, interview their employees, mm. talk to their pastors, kind of get a feel. And Chip, Chip says it this way, that if, if, they're, if they're really about getting healthy, once Chip kind of tells them some things they need to work on, he'll be invited for a, a second trip or a second day. But if they're not serious and he's got some things to say, uh, he will not be welcomed back the next day. But Chip, how I'd like to bring you into this is let's go to 2017, a year before Pastor Bill Hybels' downfall. You're invited to go to Willow Creek. Pastor Bill opens the door for you to check into their culture. Do you think that you would sniff this stuff out? I mean, every single one of us on the outside were duped. And I don't know if his closest people were. Were, were they, Scott? Were the people closest to Bill also shocked? Well, I don't know who is close. I don't. I yeah. can't tell you who was close. That may be the problem. Yeah, <laughs> that I, may be the uh, problem. I think. Uh, I think. Uh, what's her name? I can't think of the woman's name who was their associate pastor. I think she saw some things. Yeah. Um. So, but I, I'm not sure. It's hard to know. Yeah. Yeah. Chip, do you think you'd sniff some stuff out? And what? What? How well, do you think that way, visit would have gone? The way I'll answer it will kind of touch on what Scott was just saying, by the way, Scott, I, I, I do love your stuff. Well, thank you. And I've, I've looked forward to this. Um, uh, when I, when I go in, like I've told you guys this, Joey, when I go into a new church, uh, I don't care how big it is. I don't care how many books he's written. I don't care what a great preacher he is. I don't care how connected he is. I don't care how many names he drops. Um, Joey, I'm going to ask you, this is a test. What's the first thing, first person I want to meet? His wife. Yeah, I want to meet. I want to meet his wife, and if I'm kept from meeting his wife, he's he's in my book. He's already in trouble, um, because here's the deal: 
30 minutes with your wife and I know more about you than three days in your office. Um, all I need to do is hang around you and your wife, watch how you touch each other, relate to each other, defer to one another, honor one another. And my suspicion is, I do not know, and forgive me for guessing, my suspicion is that would have told me all I needed to know, is my guess. Um, the next thing I look for is what type of leaders, and be careful how you hear that, what, what type of leaders has a leader drawn up close to him and what kind of relationships do they have? Um, are they all, you know, you know, well, you know, horses that are great at what they do, and that's why they're there? Is there a sense of community? Is there a sense of openness? Is there what I call mask off culture? Um, do you get the sense that that the room's full of fear that you wouldn't dare say certain things or address certain issues? And it's not hard to smoke that stuff out. It's not hard to just, you know, what <laughs> it's almost mean. But what I love to do is I'll watch for a few minutes and then I'll just say, hey, can I ask you a question? And I'll ask a question. And what will happen a lot of times is everybody's kind of like looking around like, don't you dare make eye contact because nobody wants to answer it. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll look around and I'll pick on somebody. I'll say, hey, uh, what about you? What do you think? And you can almost hear the guy say, you turd, how dare you? And what you find is there's this, there's this code of what you can and can't talk about. And um, so theoretically, could I have sensed something wrong? Yeah, probably. Um, I mean, working with a church staff is like counseling a family. The same principles apply. Family systems theory, et cetera, et cetera. You could take the characteristics of a dysfunctional family written in your best textbook, overlay it on most churches, and it's an exact match. Mm. Like back in the 70s and 80s, the rules would have been this. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Yeah. Don't yeah. talk, don't trust, don't feel. If you say there's a problem, you are the problem because there isn't a problem. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you go into a lot of cultures, and that's what you run into. That's good, Chip. So a church called Tove, forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. Scott, I think you guys even say that you were led to write this. What I would love to hear is after what happened with Bill Hybels, how long did it take for this idea to start brewing in your head? Like, I want to write a book I want, I want to say first, Chip, what you just said was, was brilliant. I, I really like what you said. Now, I don't know how many churches are going to let the spouse in there for 30 minutes with you, but uh, that... Well, I really want an hour, but... <laughs> yeah, that discernment of the, of the people who are near them, the kind of relationships in a dynamic of a room, are they looking around to see if they're going to get in trouble to answer a question? There I think that's a revelation. I, I, I agree with you. I think that's going to tell you a lot. Okay. Uh, I did not want to write about this. Uh, my daughter was getting, and her husband were getting bombarded by people at Willow, their friends, who were very irritated with, with Laura for speaking up. And Laura would call me and say, oh, they're talking about Matthew 18. The women didn't follow Matthew 18. Etc. So I would talk to her about Matthew 18, and uh, then I told I told her about going to Deuteronomy, and it was like a like a bomb going off in a room because that's a text that's almost identical to this situation. Um, and then um, other stuff came out. I blogged about this, and the blog I know made a huge impact at the church because I had I I had at that time a lot of friends and respect in that church. Then um, more stories came out and I was approached by a publisher. Would you like to write about Willow? I said, no, I'm not, I'm not a church historian. <laughs> They're not going to let me into their office to see the records uh, of elders meetings. I want to see that stuff. And I said, no, so I'm not interested, but, and um, I've told this before, but it's the truth. I was reading a book on how the German pastors, called The Church Divided, how the German pastors responded to 
the Nazi era of Hitler and how they responded to the Holocaust against the Jews and others. And I was utterly stunned by how little of admission and confession was made and how how they refused to admit complicity, even blaming the United States for getting involved. They caused the problem. All right. So I started taking notes and I started I started taking notes because I started noticing parallels. And I read this book and I sat on it with notes, just kept it as a card. And at Christmas, Laura and Mark and Chris and I were uh, together on a beach. And I said, uh, Laura, bring something up. I said, I think we've got the makings of a book. And so um, I started to give them the points. And that those points became the false narratives chapter. And I said that, but this is not... This is not a book. This is a an expose of the way churches respond. And I said, we we have to find a redemptive message. We have to find something that moves forward for churches so that we can give suggestions to churches what they can do so this doesn't happen, like you're talking about Seacoast. So I lit upon the term goodness in my, I think it was my first blog post, and uh, so I began to study the word tov, the Hebrew word for good and goodness, and came up with some categories that then we began to use as we compared uh, the marks of toxicity in toxic churches and leadership. Um, I would look, I, we came up with a list. Laura and I just went back and forth for quite a while on what are the main marks of toxicity. And, 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 and believe me, Joey, and Chip, it is easy to illustrate these things. We found story after story. And then I, then I said, we have to flip this. If, if narcissism is the characteristic of a toxic church leader, then empathy is the characteristic of Tov. And so we flipped it. And so we developed these seven things to resist or seven characteristics of a toxic church culture and then seven characteristics of a Tove culture. So that that's how it worked. And Laura, Laura wrote a lot of this. I mean, she found almost all the stories. Um, yeah. And I mean, I find stories and, and I'd write them in and Lord say, that's not even interesting. Who cares? About, <laughs> who cares about the 18th century? You know, uh, so she would find she would find details. And then I would work on something and I would tell her to read this. She read this and then I would read and then then uh, we worked together on a manuscript. I learned how to use Google Docs, which I found very unexciting and unhelpful. But we, <laughs> we went back and forth for quite a while. So that's how we wrote so it. it. Yeah. So would you say the book is a narrative of Willow Creek and the concepts of, of Tove? Or, or would you say this is a collection of stories and all like like big capital or big capital M C for capital mega church like like I think in the uh, write up of the book there was something along the lines of you guys actually name names so do y'all talk about other pastors that fell and other things that were congruent in other cultures or is this mainly here's Willow Creek don't do this no it's not. Um it was easy to make it about Willow Creek, uh, but we did. Yep, gotcha. We talk about Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicagoland, which is James McDonald. We talk about uh, C.J. Mahaney. We talk about the Southern Baptist churches uh, where the abuse of women. Uh, I had quite a bit about the Roman Catholic Church, but my, our, our editor said, these are evangelicals who are going to read you. And, and they, they don't true. need yeah. an excuse to blame the Catholics. <laughs> so we don't have much about the Catholics, but there was plenty there. So it started with, uh, we'll use a variety of illustrations, but yes, there's a willow theme to it because this was our church. Um, and it was, I think, the most influential church in the United States for that kind of model. I mean, throughout the world. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. we go to I've been to Denmark, heard people talk about Willow. I've gone to Finland. People talk about Willow. I've been to South Africa. People talk about Willow. I've been to South Korea. Talk about Willow. It's everywhere. So and, and these other churches aren't mentioned. So it's it's about t- 
toxic church cultures with an emphasis on Willow Creek's story with other illustrations and Tove culture. Um, and those are illustrated from other places. And we, yeah. we really avoided raising up as a celebrity any church as really Tove other than the great story about um, the church. I think it's in Kentucky. I'm not sure. Uh, Presbyterian, Tate's Presbyterian, where when they heard about a story of abuse, the pastor said, here's the records. You can you, you have total access. We will not interfere with anything you ask. So yeah. that was a brilliant illustration. Yeah. So my novice perspective, and I'm curious what both of y'all think about this, is when you say, Scott, how can we keep this from happening? I think tell people, get so many Christians to read this book so they don't allow a narcissistic leader to take that position. But I don't see going in to outside of a miracle by God himself, going into a church like, God forgive me, Elevation Church, and saying, hey, we really think that there are some toxic elements of this church. You're not going to be welcome there. Yeah. They're, they're not going to. They're not going to invite you in to pick apart their culture. And I have no problem with saying I love Pastor Stephen Furtick, but from what I understand, as not a healthy culture over there. So, keeping it from happening. I mean, do you agree that once it's happened and you've got thousands of people following this this person, there's no dismantling that until it just falls on its own. Well. Um, one of the big things for me and for us in our book is that uh, it's about culture. There's a culture that's formed. So when Chip talks about family systems therapy, you know, my wife is a psychologist and I've heard about this for a long time. I haven't read any of the books, Saffir or something like that. There's some book uh, that I read. I looked at, she told me about long years ago, but um, here's a, here's a, a common statement by Peter Drucker that's that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Okay. So culture is more important than strategy. Churches focus on strategy. Culture will determine whether that strategy is legit, but I believe character eats culture. Character is what matters the most. So you can't, you can't really say that there's a, a leadership culture that's toxic. Let's let's move them all out. Sort of like taking the engine out of a car and then dropping another one in and you drive down the road. No, the whole engine was formed for that culture. So you're going to have to form all the other parts as well for the culture to change. Cultures form as a result of habits and practices and beliefs and patterns over time. Many of these churches, it took 20, 30 years to build a system. A student of mine who did a PhD in organizational transformation told me in the business world, they say it takes seven years to shift a church, a business culture when it is intentional and embraced by everybody. Think about that. Seven years. When everybody wants to change it, it takes that long. So it's going to take a lot of work. So you can't replace, I I said this right away, um, removing some of these pastors is not the solution. It's important to do, but that's not going to solve anything. I mean, it'll solve some of it. It's not all shaped by uh, these people. It's shaped by a whole, you know, like uh, it's the people around them. It's the uh, uh, chip said, what types of leaders and what kind of relationships are these people around the pastor? That's a critical factor. All those people have to be removed because they're a part of that culture that sustained and retained and maintained that pastor's toxicity. So, and that just led into all kinds of things at church. It takes, it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of work. And I, 
I, I don't. It's an epidemic. It just feels like I, I hear people and I, and I really ingest this for some optimism. When I hear people I respect say, man, there's also, there's a lot of pastors trying to avoid this. Their heart's in the right place. They're doing the right thing. And obviously, I, I guess that's easy to believe because there's thousands and thousands and thousands of pastors I just don't even know. But golly, if it doesn't sound like it's like, I don't, I'm not surprised anymore. Like, absolutely. It, it just, it feels like clockwork. Who's next? Will marriages keep breaking up? Will churches keep closing and posting for sale signs on them? Is this the human lot? Does it all have to end like this? And to those who whisper those kinds of questions to those of us in Christian leadership, we better have an answer. And it better be really clear. And I don't know what yours is, but here's mine. It does not have to end like this. Joey, one of the things that we found, Chip, you may know this. Joey, you may have heard of this. Uh, uh, non-disclosure, non-disparagement agreements, NDAs. All right. When I first heard about this, I was shocked that any church would be doing this. So I wrote to five megachurch pastors that I know. I mean, these are well-known people. Do you do this? Not one of them did it. Then one wrote me later and said, I didn't know what was going on, but we, we have signed a couple of these. I, you can't believe the number of people who've written me and who've told me that they had to sign NDAs. And furthermore, it now looks like, I think partly because I've uh, griped about this on my blog, and written about it, I think some of these churches are making people sign non-disparagement agreements to get hired. This is a change. And if you talk about it, they fire you. If you resist it, you don't get hired. If you sign it, you can't talk. They've got you exactly where they want you. What, what is going on here in churches that we are, we are requiring NDAs to get hired? This is this is a sickness, and I think I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, and then I think it's probably going to get better. Well, Chip, in the words of Vince Lombardi... What the hell's going on out here? <laughs> well, I mean, I could tie into a couple of things Scott said there um, about character back a few minutes ago. Ram Sharan, I read a book years ago, a uh, great book. And he made this statement, uh, the culture of an organization is the behavior of its leaders. That's just, that's gold. The culture of an organization is not what you say it is. It's not what you print and put on the wall. It's how you act day in and day out. What you do, do, what you don't do, what you allow, what you, you know. So the culture of an organization is the behavior of its leaders. I believe leaders create cultures and cultures then create leaders. In other yeah, words, you get yeah, this self-fulfilling yeah. cycle. Um, I think it all goes, here's the thing, and I'm, I, I want this to bring some hope into this discussion. Please, I believe, sir, please. I believe it all goes back to Genesis chapter three. You, you have the fall, you know, and, and the first encounter between God and fallen man. And, and, and here, here I am, a pastor counselor, and, and here's my, in my opinion, the, the richest, juiciest. And Scott, I've given you credit for this for years. Tell me if you said this. Are you the one who said that how you define a problem shapes your solution? Yeah, I did in an atonement book. All right. I that thing, that thing rocked my world. And then you went on to say, no, no, let me slow that down. Joey, listen to this. How you define a problem shapes your solution. Here's the thing: if we're not careful, we're going to define the problem wrong. Mm. If we try to fix the culture, we're wasting our time. We gotta fix people. And I don't mean fix. So Scott says in his book, the way you define a problem shapes your solution. The solution you find shapes the gospel you preach. The gospel you preach shapes the church you build. Am I quoting yeah, you correctly? I'm glad I said that. <laughs> I love it, dude. It, 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 it fell right into how I yeah. think. But here, follow that now in this discussion. The, the, the way you define the problem, what's the problem? The problem is alienation from God. Oh, these are Christian leaders. Please tell me that doesn't work for you. The bottom line is they're Christian leaders that live as orphans. They live without a solid, unobstructed sense of connection, joy, approval, and affection from their, quote, father. 
I mean, I shouldn't say quote, literally father. Um, so what do you have? Genesis 3, verse 10, the most, in my opinion, one of the most important scriptures. When you ask me, Scott, if you ask me how you define a problem shapes your solution, I'd, I'd point you to th- Genesis 3, 10. Here's the problem. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. What's our biggest issue in the church right now? We're still living in the shadow of Genesis 3.10. Post-Calvary, post-Pentecost, we're living in the shadow of Genesis 3.10. I fear that if you really see me for who I am, you're not going to like me. So I hide. And what we hide behind is who we know, what we've done, uh, how many books we've written, you know, oh, my song's the biggest on the chart, whatever, how many followers we have. And here's the reality. Oh, my gosh, you talk about breaking your heart, Joey. Chew this one. That's Genesis 3.10, right? The, the first encounter after the fall, 10 verses, 10 verses earlier, 10 verses. That's just it's astounding to me. Genesis 2.18, for this cause a man leaves, blah, 20, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to 25, last verse of chapter 2, and it says this. They were both naked and felt no shame. Back in the 70s, there was a song called Woodstock. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. (laughs) What we've got to do is create a culture of shameless nakedness. What we've got to do is create a culture where we're, we're comfortable at ease saying, Joey, I'm jacked up. Do you still love me? Yeah, I still love you because I'm more jacked up than you are. No, I'm more jacked. In other words, we glory in our weakness. We glory in it. Sounds like Paul talks pretty specifically about that. So, so, so where am I going? Leaders create culture. Culture creates leaders. If leaders, if leaders, basically what it boils down to is idolatry. You know, bring in a little Tim Keller here and throw this, some of that sauce around. Um, but basically, if I don't, get my identity and value from God, I'm going to get it from something external. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that error is made, we're in trouble. Our goose is cooked. Because what's going to happen now is we're, we're addicts to our idols. And, and it's just, it's over. So ultimately, the driving cog or engine in this thing is idolatry driven by orphan. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. I, I don't know how to be naked and not feel ashamed. I don't know how to let you in. One of the biggest things I try to help leaders do is build a culture. It doesn't have to be with but three or five couples. But you need some place you can take your mask off. And if you don't have it, number one, you are dangerous. And number two, you're an accident waiting to happen. Because if you don't have John 1, 14, the word became flesh, dwelt amongst, we beheld his glory. How does it end? Full of grace and truth. The number one ingredient that will determine the trajectory of your life, the number one ingredient that will determine whether you reach God's destiny for you is your appetite and handling of truth. Without a doubt. Are you a truth chaser or a truth avoider? Mm. And, and you can tell some of this stuff in a 10-minute conversation with somebody. That's good, Chip. But, but let, me, let me go back to the whole piece, Joey. My prayer, and I have to constantly purge my heart. Scott, my biggest challenge is judgment. I just judge leaders because I've been hurt pretty badly myself. I've been betrayed. I've been stabbed in the back, whatever. And so I have to, gosh, you know, God, help me, help me, help me, help me. But here's the deal, man. They're broken people. They're hurting pups, man. And power is, power is just a prop, man. It's just a prop. And they're, you know, the imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. part of why they're so dysfunctional is they don't believe they deserve it either. But they're sure going to grab and hold on to it with everything they have. The whole concept of, of leadership in the church I've talked so often about how I feel differently as a pastor. Like I I had a mental health crisis in 2019. I was not the leader of our church. Our church 
from the top down surrounded my wife, my family, my kids, the 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 what what a lot of people would call the flock shepherded my wife and myself. I know that at the end of the day I have like an operational responsibility. I'm like the go-to guy. I'm responsible for this church. I and and here's how I would word it. I take part spiritual responsibility also. But when it comes to spiritual leadership, I don't think one person ha- should at least have that responsibility by him or herself for a large organization. Like I feel like the New Testament is is very clear on there's elders. So again, organizationally, I know I'm the head guy for our campus of Seacoast, but I am one of many elders that help pastor that body. But I'm curious if you would even take it further with with kind of a pushback on the whole leadership culture. Well, Brett Favre behind you there. Is that right? Okay. Yes, sir. I, I, I grew Joey. up with Bart Starr and the Packers. Okay. <laughs> I've got a Bart Starr picture, I'm too. I'm a little um, – I have, uh, uh, let's say, a career-long uh, gripe like Eugene Peterson about the word leader. It is impossible to form an organization, uh, a church, call it an organization here legitimately, uh, without someone over time emerging with some leadership gifts. Okay. Okay, so there there is a dimension of leadership. This is not a common term used in the New Testament for what's going on. Um, We are siblings. That's the most dominant term in the early church for our relationship. And there we go. Okay, so brothers and sisters. But uh, there's going to be some leadership. My my biggest beef is that, and this was definitely connected to Bill Hybels, is that the word leader starts becoming a prototypical paradigm for, let's say, the senior pastor. And instead of seeing themselves as pastors, even though they use that term, they see themselves as leaders of an organization. And the model was coming from the business world rather than the New Testament. So I tell my students this. I said, this is my definition. A pastor is someone who pastors people. And and they just kind of look at me like, you didn't say a word. I said, yeah, I think I did. And here's, they'll come to me and they'll say, do you think I should be a senior pastor? Do you think I should be a pastor? Do you think I'm called? And I ask them two questions all the time. First, who are you pastoring right now? And secondly, who sees you as the pastor, as a pastor? Because pastoring is not a job description, it's a gift. And the people that I know who are pastors, pastor every situation they're in. They cannot not pastor. I take students to Turkey and Greece. I take students to Israel. And when we're together for two weeks like that, pastors emerge. The people who are the pastors are noticeable. So I'm I'm really nervous about young pastors seeing themselves as leaders when it means they're no longer pastoring, discipling, mentoring, forming into wisdom those whom God has given uh, them to pastor. So I'm I'm much more concerned with pastoring. The other side for me is that, and I know, I know Joey, you're in the South, um, where there's a lot more church culture. A lot of pastors see themselves as preachers. I like preaching, but to see yourself as a preacher is different than seeing yourself as a pastor. And a lot of preaching does not emerge out of a life of pastoring, but emerges out of a great gift to talk and to teach and to read and come up with great stories and motivate, et cetera. And we, we need those things. So um, I'm, I have a, I, my editor actually fr- was frustrated with me about what I was saying about a leader, because I think for him, a leader is is the right term for what pastors do, and I didn't like the term, so I pushed against that term. 
but I'm I've I've said we're followers of Jesus. That's who we are. We're not leaders. Yeah. We're followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I totally I I feel like what you described of a pastor. I, I've I've gone through a lot of cynicism and a lot of skepticism of the term leader and 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 all that stuff. And I've I've kind of come to terms with two things that you just said is one, there are people with leadership abilities, and then there are people that have just this embedded into their heart, their pastors. Yeah, yeah. That's what I feel about myself. Does Joey, someone... Joey, can I say something on that? Yes. Um, I mean, Scott, I would say in my banging around, um, I would, I found myself saying it this way. We, 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 we overmanage and under pastor. Mm. I feel like, I feel like we brought the, the world's style of leadership into the church and it, it looks like it's working, but it isn't. Um, and I think pastoring, real pastoring is becoming a lost art. Oh boy. You're um, totally right. Yeah. Is there a place and time when someone like Bill Hybels is delusional and doesn't really think he's doing anything wrong? Like, it, it is there a line that you cross where you no longer feel like, oh, this is really awful. I'm I'm a fake. I'm a hypocritical person. I'm actually a predator. I possibly ruining people's lives. Is there? Is there a line that you cross where that's not even registering? Because I look at I look at Bill Hybels and, and his story, and this stuff goes back, I think, in the 80s, man. It was almost like it, this wasn't something that over time, as he got more and more power, he started to gravitate to. It seems like just he was unhealthy and did unhealthy things for a, a, a very long time. Is there a place in time, I, I guess, Chip, as a therapist, where you're just not, it's not even clicking that I'm doing something wrong? Like, how do I mean, we, Robbie Zacharias, man, that stuff is atrocious. I mean, it's flat out evil. Like, he had sex with women and said, you basically helped my ministry by giving me this. And, oh, yeah, if you tell anybody, I will definitely make sure that you don't hear the end of me. That's sick, evil. And here we are listening to this guy and being taught. And I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of people that I heard is just like, man, Ravi was kind of my guy. He was like, he was like the 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 one that I could point to and say, this dude is smart, he's brilliant, he believes in God, and he's doing this shit behind the scenes. It's just it's it it gives me bad goosebumps. Chip, let me, they let ever me get to a point where they don't think what happened, what, what, what's going on in their heads, right, I, man. I'm going to, I'm going to answer your question. I'm, I'm answering your question, but it's not going to sound like it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm applying for a job at a church and the pastor's got, you know, kind of a, a fairly strong authoritative culture. And he says, uh, you know, we, you know, we believe in submission to authority. So, you know, are you good with recognizing if you come on staff here, you'll be under my authority. And I say, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm probably good with that. But let me ask you a question. Whose authority are you under? Well, I, 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 I'm under God. Oh, well, I, I'll do that too then. Well, I've got overseers. Where are they? Well, one's in Kansas and one's here. How often do you see them? Well, you know, they come in and preach every once in a while. I said, oh, so do they really know you, know your wife, know your ups and downs, know when you're having a good day, a bad day? Okay, then that doesn't count. So who do you factually, skin on skin, who can jerk a knot in your behind when you get off track? Well, I guess that'll have to be God. And I said, well, then I want the same arrangement. If you're not submitted to anybody, I, I don't feel safe submitting to you. And I would actually counsel people with that train of thought. <laughs> I get it. Nobody, but I nobody gets, nobody gets a, a free pass. And here's what I, here's how I tie that to delusion, Joey. We need to start with this very simple idea. If a leader trusts himself, I automatically don't trust him. We all ought to assume that we're delusional in some area of our self awareness. We just ought to assume it. I'm, I'm deluded in some area about how I see myself. And, and that's why, Joey, I'd point a finger at a guy like you and say, if you're a friend to me, you're going to call me out when my delusion is showing. Yeah. So yeah. 
it starts in the little stuff. I, I agree with what he, what he said there. That's and that's a pretty dang good story. Um, if you go into psychology, at some point, some people have have uh, fixated in their delusional thinking that uh, the things aren't bad. If they're Christians, I don't believe they can ever get to the point where they don't think these are wrong. So I, I think that they are going to be living with very serious tension in their life. Eventually, it's going to yeah. pop into depression, into serious forms of anxiety. So I, I would say, no, they can never do that, but they will rationalize. Narcissists are going to rationalize their grandiosity any way they can and any way they need to, and they're going to land on their feet. But they're never going to get to the point, if they're genuinely a Christian, they're not going to get to the point where they don't know it's wrong. All right. I got to squeeze a bunch into like 10 minutes. Like I said, I knew I wouldn't be able to get everything out that I, that I want. And I know at this point, people are extremely intrigued by this book, probably people ordering already on Amazon. <laughs> like Scott, as someone who went to Willow Creek, would you say God was working at Willow Creek? Unquestionably. I've said this from the beginning and I'll say it over and over. Amazing amount of ministry done at Willow Creek still. It was being done then. We are dealing with broken vessels. Cracked icons is what I call them in one of my uh, yeah, books. They're, they're, they're cracked and they leak. So, uh, but there comes a point where you say that that crack is too big to be a pastor, you know? Um, but um, there, there's going to be good and there's going to be bad. In all people, we expect pastors, leaders and churches and mature Christians to grow in Tove uh, to the point where they, their instincts are more Tove. And and I'm not even sure if we've allowed you to say have have you so Tove is the Hebrew good. word for and good. good, and it describes the fullness of total moral behavior. Yeah. Is that is that a little overreaching? Like as it's, as far it's a master, as master moral category of the Bible. Good, goodness, yeah. good. To be tov is is a great term, big term. Yep. Yeah, I, I guess the reason why I said that is because the the total part, like we're not ever going to arrive. No, correct. correct? Yeah, Joey, that's going to be uh, that's going to be the name I require from you going forward. <laughs> Call me Pastor Tove. Oh my gosh, that's that's that's. Uh, all right. This I, we won't talk about this at long. Do do church do uh, Christian conferences have to go? Because I don't know how we can keep having these things without promoting superstars. I've often wondered why don't we have someone talking to every. And, and by the way, I've I've had a conference with my old podcast, and of course we got people with notoriety and bigger names. So I get it. But if we truly, but I'll say that was a podcast, not a church. But if we truly want to get rid of this superstar mentality, church conferences ain't helping much. Not the big ones. I think, uh, I think Chip would agree with me. Let, let's start inviting people of character. Tove people. Yeah. Listen to Tove people. Yeah. And also, I would I would highlight that. Well, we, anytime you have a conversation like we're having, we've got to be careful to differentiate root and fruit. The fruit is the conference with the rock stars. The root is leaders who are getting their needs met inappropriately. Both the speaker on stage and the inviter of the speaker on stage. <laughs> so if we, can, if we can figure out how to teach guys to get their needs met, it all boils down to how you get your needs met who you look to, who you run to, all everything we're talking about is meeting a right need the wrong way. Always think, okay, am I talking root or fruit? Because if, listen to this thought, this is the counselor talking. If you attack the fruit, you strengthen the root. If you attack the fruit, you strengthen the root. What we've got to figure out is, and it takes the... The, the mercy, grace, and kindness of Jesus and the, and the wisdom of the Holy Ghost to, to figure out how to sneak behind the fruit and address the root. 
And um, it's tricky, man. Scott, we jump on restoration so quickly. It's like we got to get this pastor restored, you know, break them away for a long time, i.e. one year, and then we'll get them back in the back in the pulpit or, or whatever. Shouldn't some pastors just not be restored to that job? It, like for some people, isn't it just something they don't need to be doing? Don't restore them? I th- or is that a very judgmental no, thing? I don't to think say? it's judgmental. And- I, but I do think um, people who've betrayed trust at a significant level are never going to regain trust in that context. They might be able to go off to Alaska, uh, go off to a foreign country and rebuild their life. Um, I don't know that I would be totally against that as long as they're being monitored and they've been healed. But in general, I would say, yes, there are people who should not go back into pastoring, uh, into ministry of any sort. And I, and I also would say we need to have very clear, discerning, wise people who can look at this person and say they have genuinely repented and they are working hard at what was causing these problems, and they are on the path to recovery. I just talked to a man the other day as a pastor who saw these problems in his life, and he's worked on them for 10 years and is now back in part-time ministry, and he said to see if I can be trusted. Now, he didn't do anything really serious. He just was he saw an ego that was unhealthy and power desires that he abused his power and he wanted to heal from it. And it took him 10 years. It's still taking. Yeah. Man. I can't remember if it was Spurgeon or who it was said something. I went through a situation, gosh, when I was 30 with a guy who just, Oh, it was horrible. And, uh, I wrestled with all this, and I think it was Spurgeon that said this, uh, a man in the pulpit who sins should not be restored to the pulpit until his repentance is as famous as his sin. And I thought that was brilliant. Pretty good. Pretty good. Spurgeon had a lot of great lines. Yeah, he did. He really did. Scott, this isn't any sort of uh, digging for any sort of judgment. I, I, I really am curious at this point, have you gotten involved in another community of, of Oh, we were, we were involved already. We were, uh, we're in an Anglican church, yeah. uh, evangelical gotcha. Anglican church, and we were involved in that when this all broke out. And I wouldn't have gotten involved had it not been for Laura. Laura, Laura gotcha. kept me involved because they – Gotcha. And my last question, it, it this is something you are extremely passionate about. It, it feels to me, I'm not, uh, but I don't want to make this assumption. I just want to straight up ask you, like, are there legs to this book as far as what you want to do next with these concepts? Or is there a strategy of brewing with, uh, with Scott as far as actually trying to do something about this with what you've written? I mean, I think your book is already going to be super beneficial. Is there a next step of the Tove concept? Um, we're doing some things uh, developing uh, with, with a group of uh, therapists in, in the United Kingdom, um, like a test, uh, some kind of you know MMPI type thing that you can give to churches to see how healthy their church is, how Tove and how toxic it is. Uh, but that's that's going to take quite a bit of work. Uh, uh, we're getting asked similar questions that we need to develop. I don't know if it'll be an expanded edition or another book, uh, but um, we'll, we'll see. What, what can we do with next steps of creating a, a Tove Church? I think, in a sense, uh, we've uh, publishers love you know second second books, but uh, second books never sell like first books unless you're Ernest Hemingway. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do I do think that um, we would have to have another really good idea, and I think I can determine that. Or it would just be maybe some expanded sections in, in, the, in the original book. We'll see. Um, can, big well, congratulations you. to just to, – to, uh, seriously, I, I want to slow down and really say uh, a, a life – full of contributions well, like 
like seriously, seriously, all all respect, man. And I, I count it an honor to have you on here. Now, is there anything else you want to tell people about or just go to Amazon or is there a, a, a more beneficial way for them to you know, get the however, book? However they buy books, just uh, the point isn't, you know, to read the book, but to, is for us to become Tove people. Tove characters yeah. that we can get in pockets of Tove and start impacting the church. You know, I tell everybody what we need is churches with pastors with the character of Mr. Rogers. Uh, I believe that. I mean, know, he's a good it. man. After I thought through this whole phrase, you know, the, the local church is the hope of the world. I, I started pouring myself increasingly into it at Willow and trying to help other churches. As Willow grew and matured, and believe me, you know, we're 27 years old now as a church, and we've got a lot of growing and maturing to do. We, we're a church with a lot of problems, but we've made some progress. I don't lie. I was haunted by you. The further I got, the more it rained true. Drowning 